Thank you, Jennifer, and to the team. Good morning, everyone. I, I realize you're going to find this hard to believe, but I was in IKEA again this week. <laughs> of course, if you're visiting with us this morning, there's a backstory, and you can listen to either last week's sermon or the week before that, where after three years in Canada, I only went to IKEA for the first time two weeks ago. And apparently, it's the kind of place that once you go to, you just you can't not go to. And, and so there we are. So I'm in IKEA again this past week, and now I know what I'm doing. I know where the stuff is. I know how the place operates. I know the flow. Most importantly, I know where the restaurant is. <laughs> now, for the sake of maybe, because I know I didn't know anything about IKEA, so there might be a couple of people here this morning who have never been to IKEA. I will save you the embarrassment of putting your hands up, uh, but for your benefit, IKEA is a furniture store. And they have got kind of like everything. And the way it's laid out is a little bit like an amusement park. I kid you not. There are arrows on the floor that direct you. And you kind of follow the whole way through the store. And it's a showroom just filled with all these rooms. Bedrooms, kitchens, bathrooms, dining rooms, studies, lounges, outdoor. You know, they've got it kind of all kitted out with everything decorated. Decorations, pictures on the walls, radios and music and lights, and it's amazing. And you get to see all the products. So you can kind of like touch them and open them and kick them, and although that's frowned upon. But you know, you've got all the stuff. And so you walk through IKEA looking and you decide, I like this one. I had to get a chest of drawers. I like this one. Well, actually, I didn't like it. My daughter liked it, and that was the one we were getting. So, okay. And that has a number. Then you take that number and you go downstairs into this warehouse that is just huge. And you go and find the corresponding number. But here's where it gets a bit of a problem because it's a box. And you take this box and you take the box back home. And with the help of some rudimentary drawings, you try to get this box to look like what you saw on the showroom floor. But you know what I love about that box? Is it has everything in it that you need. The little bolts, the little screws, the little nuts, all the little wooden pieces, everything. One of them even had like this little tool to tighten some of the nuts. And I was like, this is amazing. The box has everything. And everything has a purpose. And everything works together. And everything creates this beautiful end product that is useful. And what is my favorite expression at home? There's a sermon illustration in that. <laughs> because that got me thinking about church. And I thought, you know, isn't the church a little bit like God's IKEA product? <laughs> that he's kind of putting together to serve a purpose? And if I look around, and if I look at myself, he's not finished yet with us. He's not finished yet with this product that he's building. But man, I'm filled with hope. And I'm filled with joy at the fact that God is building something amazing that will serve his purpose, that will bring him glory. And you and I are all a part of that product. We're the nuts that go into different places, if you want. Everything has a purpose in that box. So let me ask you, what is your purpose? 
It has been said that there are two great days in a person's life. The day they are born and the day they find out why. So what is your purpose? Now you might kind of say, well, Brian, why all the talk about purpose? We've heard that a couple of weeks now, a couple of months, maybe even a few years. Why all the talk of purpose? Well, it's quite simple. We here at White Rock Baptist Church believe God has given us a purpose. We have our purpose statement. We seek to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ. Worshipping God and growing in faith to impact the world. This is why we're here. To worship, to grow, to impact the world. We have a purpose as a church and we have a purpose as individuals. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series. Uh, We've joined the CBWC. That's the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada. A reminder that even though we think we as a church have a purpose, we're part of a much bigger body. And we have a purpose across the nation and across the world. And so we've joined together with the CBWC and we've been preaching through a series called Engaging Gospel. Why the gospel is still good news. And the word gospel simply means good news. Most of us have heard that word at some point. We kind of think of, well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed. But it is still good news and it's good news that we use to engage with the world. And to have an impact in the world. When we talk of the good news of Christ, the the good news of grace, the good news of forgiveness, of salvation, redemption, the good news of his abiding presence, the good news of the sovereignty of God. It's not merely some hypothetical thing that we just have to believe a few propositional statements and there we go. No, the purpose of the gospel is it's not a yesterday or tomorrow thing, it's a today thing. For here, for now, the gospel impacts my life, and as I respond to the gospel, so I impact lives around me. We engage with the gospel. So when somebody asks, well, does life really have meaning? Is there really a purpose? Our answer should be a resounding yes. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not here by chance. You're not here just to pursue some kind of, you know, the... the, Uh, The cliched American dream. You're not here to make yourself happy. You're not here pursuing pleasure and all those things. No, your life has a much bigger purpose. A bigger purpose that impacts. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of humanity? Why are we here? And it answers that question by saying, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our purpose is to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're going, Brian's a little zealous and he's a little bit fanatical about this. I'm just quite content and comfortable here. And Brian's trying to make me a fanatic as well. Not at all. I'm busy reading uh, The Reason for God, one of Tim Keller's books. And Tim Keller says this, What if the essence of Christianity is salvation by grace? Salvation not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Belief that you are accepted by God by sheer grace is profoundly humbling. 
Those people who are fanatics then are so not because they are too committed to the gospel, but because they're not committed to it enough. Think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they're not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Jesus Christ was. Because they think Christianity is a self-improvement program, and they emulate the Jesus of the whips in the temple, but not the Jesus who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and the gospel. Why have we spent seven weeks and a few more to come spending time in the gospel? Not because I want you to become fanatical, but because I want each of us to fully understand and realize what the gospel is and how it changes our lives and how it changes the world when we respond to that gospel and we become like Christ in the world. A world in desperate need of Jesus Christ. So what is your purpose? I could phrase that a little bit differently and say, well, what does God expect of us? Paul answers or writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And he says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his Ikea product, created for a purpose, created for good works. Good works that impact the world and make a difference in the lives of those around us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether paper or on your phone or on a device, it'll be up on the screen behind me as well. But I'd encourage you and invite you to turn to Micah chapter 6, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. What does God require of us? What is my purpose? What does the gospel lead me into in a world that is in desperate need? It's answered in verse 8 that we've just read. A little bit of background just for this passage over here. Uh, We have the prophet Micah foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem for Israel's sinful ways. In verse 1, he tells the people to plead their case, as it were. Imagine a court scene, and he's inviting Israel to come before God and to plead their case and to give their defense. And then he goes and lists what God has done for them. He's led them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He's led them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He's given them godly leadership in Moses and Aaron and Miriam and even later Joshua. But how quickly they've forgotten all of this and how quickly they've drifted away from God and drifted into rebellion and into sin. And as I read a passage like this, yes, it might be directed to the nation of Israel, but it's very easy for you and I to substitute ourselves and our names into this passage. Because much like Israel, too often we lead and drift away from God. We find ourselves in a lifestyle far contrary to what God invites us into. There was a little boy attending church uh, for a while, and the church he attended had stained glass windows with the saints, you know, St. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the stained glass windows. And one day in Sunday school, he was asked to define what is a saint. This little boy thought for a while, and then he simply answered, a saint is a person that the light shines through. I thought, how awesome is that? Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? Let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let the light of Christ shine through you so that people may see it and praise God in heaven. But what does it mean to do that? What does God require of us? What is our purpose as we respond to the gospel? Micah 6 verse 8 gives us a good place to start. Three quick points within there. First thing Micah says to the nation and therefore to us as well is to act justly. What does God require of us? To act justly. And yes, in this context, there is the sense of to be honest. Micah says that we are to be honest because there was a great deal of injustice and a great deal of dishonesty happening within the nation of Israel. Micah goes on in verses 9 to 13 to talk about dishonest scales, to talk about liars, to talk about deceit, how the nation of Israel was cheating one another. And we might kind of skim over that, but get this, this is God's people. These weren't the heathens back in Egypt. These weren't the godless who who were not chosen in relationship with God. These were God's people interacting with one another and, and deceiving one another. People would come and purchase grain and they would keep their hand on the scale to kind of make it seem a little heavier. And of course, the ones being cheated were often the the ones who had the least. And so the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. 
And so Michael says, no, there is no room for this dishonesty. Stop weighing your thumb. Be truthful in what you do. And this is to act justly, is to be honest, to let our light shine, to let the light of Christ, sorry, shine through us in our honesty. God requires his people to be honest every time, all the time. There's no room for little white lies. There's no room for small deceptions. Oh, well, I'm going to protect them by hiding the truth. No, we are called to be truthful. But not only for us to be truthful, but also for us to speak up and act on behalf of those who are oppressed, on behalf of those who have no voice, on behalf of those who are taken advantage of, perhaps because of a socioeconomic position or whatever, to stand up on their behalf. If you've never read the biography of William Wilberforce, I would encourage you to pick up that book. William Wilberforce was a young man who went into politics at 20 years old. And at 25, he was saved. He discovered who Christ was. He discovered the gospel and responded. And God got so a hold of his heart that he dedicated the rest of his life to the abolishment of slavery because he believed in the gospel that all mankind were created equal and no human deserved to be enslaved to another human. It's a fascinating story as as Christ spoke through him and moved through him to bring freedom. This is acting justly, standing up and advocating for those in need. Although the sad truth is still today, there are 27 million slaves in the world around us. Whether children enslaved in factories or in fields, whether women enslaved in sex industries across the globe, or even so-called areas where low-caste citizens have to serve the higher classes, slavery is not ended and we should be speaking up. Uh, maybe closer to home. Speaking up is, or to act justly is to get our hands dirty. To get involved in the various crises we see around us in the lower mainland. Instead of to sit far off and to kind of bemoan and decry and denounce those enslaved in, in drug addictions or whatever other addictions. We are called to act justly to get our hands dirty and to advocate and to minister to those in need in those places. We are required. This is the purpose God has for us. I'm so excited that in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be hearing some incredible things from our missions committee around some of these topics. As we seek to respond to the gospel, to go and act justly and to get our hands dirty and to serve, to do justice. I've just finished reading a a book. One of my favorite authors is Terry Pratchett, and he writes these kind of fantasy novels. Uh, And in one of the scenes, the hero of the story is talking to the Grim Reaper. And uh, the Grim Reaper, if you don't know, is the personification of death, the guy in the black hood with the scythe and all of this. But the hero and the Grim Reaper are talking, and they're talking about death and, and kind of the end of life and all of this. And the hero says to the Grim Reaper in response to a situation, he says, there's no justice which the Grim Reaper responds, there is never justice. There is just us. And he goes on to say, whatever happens will be based on what we do, not on what somebody else does. When we say there is no justice, we should be reminded there is just us. What is our purpose? It is to act 
justly. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy? What is mercy? Mercy is compassion or love in action. God's word is filled with accounts of mercy, of love, of care, of concern. We see mercy when some large-scale event takes place, when there's a disaster, whether a tsunami, a volcano, a hurricane, or whatever. When, when these happen, we see people pouring out compassion from the entire world to respond. This is mercy. But mercy is also loving and giving when it may not be deserved. You see, it's easy to help someone we know. It's easy to ignore someone we don't like or don't know. But God's people are required to show mercy. God doesn't give us prerequisites for this. He says we are to love, we are to practice mercy, we are to show mercy regardless of the circumstances. That means when we find ourselves with someone that we don't want to show mercy to, we can be sure God will challenge us at that point to show and to love mercy. There were no doubt many examples of unmerciful people in Micah's time as he speaks to the nation. People going without while others had more than enough. James in the New Testament picks this up as well. And James says, faith without works is dead. And I love the example he gives. He gives the example of if somebody is cold and in need of a jacket or in need of a blanket or in need of warmth. If you just say to them, go well, be warm. And you do nothing about it. That's not mercy. Mercy is practical and tangible. Mercy takes a coat or a blanket. Mercy doesn't look at the person and say, well, you're there because of your own foolish choices. And you need to suffer the consequences of your choices. Mercy says you're created in the image of God. You bear the fingerprint of God. And but for the grace of God, there go I. So therefore, mercy gets involved We are required. What does God require of us? To love mercy. To practice. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Lastly, and certainly not least, we are required to walk humbly with God. If we do not walk with God, the first two requirements are going to be incredibly difficult for us. I remember seeing a a cheesy Christian bumper sticker. It said, get your exercise, walk with God. Now, as terrible as that might be, that's true. We should be walking with God daily, exercising, practicing. Walk with God, pray with God, spend time with God. The problem in Micah's time was the nation of Israel, the people of God who were invited into relationship with God were no longer walking with their God. They had drifted away. And just like the nation of Israel, you and I are prone to this as well. And when we stop walking with God, when we stop spending time in the presence of God, slowly rebellion and sin will creep in as we drift away. Walking with God includes, it's not limited to, it includes a healthy prayer life. Do you pray regularly? Do others see you pray Do others see you giving thanks for food, even in a restaurant? A healthy prayer life is walking with God. Reading and studying the Lord's word or the word of God is also walking with God. 
It, it confounds me. In fact, it, it depresses me, to be honest. When I read research in Christian groups and to see huge numbers and huge percentages of those who identify as Christian who don't open their Bible once a week. People who do not read the word of God cannot say they're walking with God. Another way we walk with God is to attend church, to fellowship with other believers, or even as we saw earlier on, to be in a life group, a small group, engaging my questions and my my grappling and my wrestling with God. That loving community, worshiping and growing in faith. Another way we walk with God is responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, whether it's to encourage someone whether it's to help someone. And as we respond, so we experience the presence of God or serving in the body of Christ. When we make an effort to do these things, we are walking with God. Remember, walking is an action. It's a verb. As Henry Blackaby, the author of the Experiencing God series says, you cannot walk with God and stay where you are. You cannot walk with God and stay Where you are. If you are walking with God, you will grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The people of Micah's time had ceased to do that. And it was showing in their nation. And it was showing around them. Friends, are you walking with God? This passage in Micah chapter 6 is prophetic. It speaks of a time when discipline will come over the nation of Israel because of their rebellion and because of their sin. And while that's a sermon for another whole day, there are times where God will get our attention by allowing discipline because he is a good parent. And like any good parent who sometimes has to discipline their child to bring them back in line and to bring them back into that safe and blessed place, God does this to us in order to show us mercy and compassion and to invite us to walk with him daily. Are you walking with God? I close with this. The good news of the gospel is that it gives us a purpose. That purpose is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. If we do this, the simple act of doing that will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a watching world. And he will complete his glorious purpose to make in us what he is building. Let's pray together. Father, when we engage in your word, when we read your word, and we hear your voice speaking to us, we are reminded that you are a good father who loves us and who cares for us. And you have shown us incredible mercy in Jesus Christ. That while we were still sinners, while we were alienated from you and far off, Jesus, you gave your life in order to redeem us. And that we might be restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father. God, thank you for your love. And God, as we receive that and as we worship you for that and as we walk in thanksgiving for that, Help us to walk closely with you, to walk humbly with you. And as we walk humbly with you daily, spending time in your presence, 
being shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would go out and we would be known as people who act justly and who love mercy. Who are not afraid to get their hands dirty in situations where mercy and justice is needed. May we be known as those people. Not fanatics, but disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, may you be glorified. May your will be done. And may your kingdom come. For we ask this in Jesus' name.